Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibhulani, and today in Raise Line, I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Ramin Ahmadi, the Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the American Canadian School of Medicine, a relatively new institution located in the Commonwealth of Dominica in the Caribbean. Dr. Ahmadi is a former professor of medicine at Yale and worked with faculty from Yale and the Penn State Medical Schools to develop the curriculum for ACSOM. He has developed new and innovative primary care residency programs for community health centers and community hospitals and has been awarded more than $20 million in competitive grants by HRSA for his program development over the last two decades. Dr. Ahmadi's interest in public health is not merely academic and focused on health and human rights. He has participated in human rights investigations and humanitarian missions in Chechnya, East Timor, and Sri Lanka. He is also the author of two books of poetry, numerous articles and short stories in Persian and English, and has also published books on Iran's longest-held prisoner of conscience. Dr. Mahdi, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you know, as we often start with Raise Line guests, we'd like you, in your own words, to tell us what got you interested in medicine and then ultimately a career in internal medicine and primary care. Well, you know, I was really a history major, and I did not think about medicine as a career early on in life. But gradually, I was attracted to the profession. I was attracted to the profession because I felt not that only that it was a calling for me, but also the fact that you were able to care for people, that you were able to really be very important and impactful in someone's life. And those were very, very important to me. Something that like as a, as a history major, that's very preoccupied with the past and what the, what the past was all about, you, you do not really get the satisfaction about the moment, the present. And the, the present is, I think, can be very rewarding when you are able to hold somebody's hand, to take care of them, to take care of their family, and to be important in their life. So that was why I sort of, Finally, after years of history major, I switched careers and uh, went into the field of medicine. That makes sense. And before we, we had a conversation before this podcast where we both shared the fact that we're mutually acquainted with and you're friends with Dr. Lisa Sanders at Yale, which seems to attract people like yourself and her who are you know non-traditional medical students or it gives them opportunities. So I'm glad that they do it. Do you mind? You know, walking us through you earning your medical degree at Yale, and then you got a master's degree in global health, and you've done all, some really interesting human rights work. Sure. I did my residency in internal medicine at, at Yale and went on to get a master of public health degree at Yale with emphasis in global health. And of course, I was attracted to global health because of the background in history and interest in, in human rights and humanitarian mission. So th- that that. That was early on in my career that I also discovered that I loved teaching and I loved the medical education. Dedicated my entire career to that. I, I, after finishing residency, I, I did a year of chief residency and then became an associate program director for an internal medicine residency program of the small affiliates of, of Yale. And stayed in the business of medical education until today. It has been a very rewarding career for me. 
within within that sort of if you will sphere of medical education i have done other works that i have truly enjoyed in the area of global health in the area of health and human rights humanitarian emergencies and so forth so that's that's what has brought me finally to this point today we have a brand new medical school that we are opening next week monday yeah well we can dive into that and then circle back to your experience running residency programs which i know will be interesting to our our learners as well as obviously your public health work and humanitarian missions so you know congratulations on starting a new medical school we've worked with a bunch of new medical schools from kaiser permanente to the unthsc in texas and we know how hard it is secondhand how to, to start a med school and you guys are in an interesting position because you're in the beautiful island of Dominica, which I've had the opportunity to visit twice in the past, back when it was Ross University School of Medicine. Can you give us an overview of how the American Canadian School of Medicine came to be what and, and what you think sets it apart from other medical schools? This school initially started in Kazan, Russia. And the reason was because Yale had a, a, a very good relationship with Kazan, Russia, that goes back to more than 25 years. They, in fact, I was the first Yale resident that was sent to Russia as a part of this collaboration that, that began with a grant from USAID in, in 1993. And I volunteered and went for two reasons. Well, certainly number one, nobody else wanted to go. But number two, was because I had spent my previous life and career studying Russian history. I was very interested in Russian literature and Russian culture. So I was very familiar with that environment and I was excited to go. The Kazan became, after my visit was selected, as the site for the Yale activities and it became a site where a lot of Yale faculty and students every year would go, and in return, many Kazan faculty, Kazan State Medical University faculty and students would visit Yale University and stay in Yale Medical School for various periods of time, sometimes up to six months. As a result, within a period of two decades, Kazan State Medical University had a revolution in medical education. They, they transformed themselves from the old ways of doing medical education by essentially adopting many of the methodologies and approaches to medical education that they have learned from Yale and Yale College. So this was, as a result, an environment that was very open to us for work. And so with my Yale colleagues, with our colleagues Jeff Wong from Penn State, we decided to start first a Residency in internal medicine in Kazan, we got full accreditation for it from Royal College of Canada, which, by the way, was the first time in the history of medical education that a residency program outside of North America had full accreditation equal to accreditation inside Canada. Our first graduate of that residency program, in fact, came to the U.S., did a nephrology fellowship and went on to become an attending at the University of Maryland. So it was a proven track. It was working. It was working very well. And so we decided upon that to build the first American medical school in, in Russia, in Kazan, and with a curriculum that was very much similar to Penn State and Yale. And we did that. 
and we trained for four years faculty that was ready to implement that curriculum. And then there was a war, of course. And because of the war, we had to pull out. And they pulled out. That was the end of the project at that point. They were all very sad. Years and years of effort went into that. And then here the government of Dominica approached us because they had a medical school here on the island. They have an empty campus, a beautiful empty campus. And they said, would you come to us? And of course, you know, we did. We brought the curriculum, the faculty, all of that work, work several years here. And we started here on the island and we're opening that school now next Monday for the inauguration class. The main features, I think the most important feature of the medical school is its curriculum. It's very modern curriculum. It's very different from all other traditional programs and international medical schools. It, the approach is a very progressive sort of flipped classroom approach to educating the students. We have done away with essentially all those that business of putting 700 students in an auditorium and le lecturing them because we believe this is a generation that doesn't do well with that. We have taken, as you know, of course, the osmosis as a major piece of our platform of Canvas. And that's where the students do a lot of their practice and learning. So what happens is essentially day number one, they get their, all of the material and the lectures that they need for their two years of medical education downloaded on an iPad and given to them. So, because this is a generation that that's how they like. They, they, if they want to hear, if they want to listen to a lecture, they will find, for example, that little osmosis, you know, YouTube video that talks about the physiology of the renal tubules and then don't listen to it. They're not going to sit in an auditorium for hours and listen to somebody like me with a heavy Middle Eastern accent to tell them about the renal tubular physiology. That would be crazy. And that would be crazy to expect them to do. So what we do instead is that we give them all those resources within a very well-designed canvas, a canvas that has been designed by actually people with a lot of expertise to organize every day of their education. But then what happens is after they go and listen to all the osmosis pieces, all the, the sort of the lectures that were there pre-recorded for them, reading that has been selected for them, they do all that on their own. Then the next morning, when that homework, they complete that homework, hopefully, they come to the to school, they come into these small group classrooms where eight to 10 of them are paired with an MD physician, sometimes an MD PhD, but, and, but all of them are physicians and they're trying to train clinicians. And they have a number of cases and, and that prepared for them. And they give them these cases as a group to work on, to solve, based on what they have done the night before. And it takes usually that three hours that morning to do those cases one by one. And they sit there and do it until the faculty is satisfied. The faculty has usually a checklist and they'll be satisfied when the checklist is complete. And then they go in the afternoon to the anatomy lab, which that part is a very traditional anatomy lab. But it's all about dissection and learning the, the anatomy of the body. So that, that's really our, our, our curriculum. 
it's very unique. The canvas is a proprietary canvas that is very unique and extremely well organized and resourceful and with resources such as osmosis under available to the students. And we prepare them, of course, for being becoming a physician and becoming a competent physician, but also making sure that 100% of them pass their board examination step one and two successfully. What we have, what is different in that, in that this kind of school just doesn't exist outside of the United States and certainly on a Caribbean shore as far. Well. So this is very unique. It's different from American schools, obviously, because it's outside of the United States. But, but in terms of the approach and the curriculum and the way that each of these integrated system-based modules are taught, it is, I would say, almost identical to Penn State. Dr. Wong, uh, I think, would agree they're very similar, very similar to, to Yale in many aspects. It's almost a hybrid. I brought my experience from our side and, and did it from his side. And then we had a group of very talented faculty that was integrating and putting this together over the course of the last four years. So we're excited. We're excited. It's here. And it's it's a very unique international school and opportunity for the students who want to to explore it. I love that. And and I think you know there's a lot of threads to pull on on there. And obviously we're we're really happy about the partnership and the fact that you guys have gone all in on evidence-based education, flipped classroom, all of that. And you know, my my perspective going through med school myself is that the reason you go to a school, like the, the content itself, you can learn, you know, obviously through videos and questions. But really, where where I think we benefit the most is those small groups with professors like yourself and mentors, people who eventually become mentors who help us decide which residency program to go to, or maybe we're very interested in a career in public health and humanitarian rights like you've had, and then you become a mentor to some of your students. And that's that has much more of an effect, I think, on on what type of clinicians we train and can we keep them in the in the in the career as long as we can versus, you know, the incremental, you know, test question or, 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 you know, basic science knowledge or even clinical science knowledge. I'm sure the other thing that's unique about your background is all the experience you have launching and running residency programs, because that's obviously one of the, one of the biggest concerns of any students, I'm sure, who come to any med school, let alone a new med school, let alone one in the Caribbean, is will I get into residency in the U.S. or Canada or, or elsewhere? You know, can you comment a bit about how you're integrating clinical learning opportunities and then what do the third and fourth year look like or the rotations look like for these students, knowing that they're just starting their journeys right now? We have three major clinical campus sites that we have designed for them in Florida, California, and Connecticut. But what what we do is that the clinical training is really starts from day one. We have also in in Dominica clinical settings and community-based actually settings for, for them to, to get experience in clinical medicine. We have a course, a traditional course that runs throughout the two years called Being a Doctor, where it's all about learning bedside clinical medicine skills. It, it's, it starts with, of course, some sort of a program that's called Cyber Patient. It's a it's a virtual platform of having patients to interview, to talk to, to examine, to manage, 
course, you can make mistakes and you will make mistakes as a medical student. And when you do make mistakes, even costly mistakes, these are just virtual patients, you're forgiven, but you learn. And, and then you move from that to a, a simulation center that we have, that is, we have designed to be heavily and extensively focused on standardized patient programs from the community here, where they, you start practicing. So you go from the virtual patient to standardized patient. You are observed, recorded, and your recording is analyzed, shared with you, you have feedback. And, and then from there, you graduate into the real clinical setting with real patients, but of course, again, under supervision, your faculty, because the way we organize that, each faculty member, physicians are all day long with 10 students. And so on two afternoons a week, they take in each afternoon, half of the group, five of the students with them to the clinical center. So, so you have a one half an afternoon per week as a student of going into the clinical setting and interacting with patients again under supervision. And this is the whole first two years. So that the year three and four, when you go to clinical campuses, you are you are going to structured rotations at, at, at teaching hospitals that we have contracted with. So that gives you very good, strong, I, I believe, clinical trade. The residency and residency match is, of course, an entire different problem. You can, you can be an international graduate, you can be a very seasoned clinician, have had excellent training, and have the difficulties in the, in the match or getting matches because the numbers are not in your favor. The numbers, of course, a fraction of the number of all the graduates were applying to a particular international graduate. So what we do is we, we develop also, just as we develop clinical campuses within our experience, we develop residency programs also as a part of sort of our project residencies that are affiliated with our medical school for our medical students, essentially clinical training grants for residency training of our, our medical students. So that 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 is a, a longer term process to make sure that if there is a percentage of our graduates are not matched in the general sort of residency match, we have backup options. This was why we created the residency in Kazan. We would be looking into developing a similar type of a accredited residency right here in Dominica and then in other centers in the United States. We developed it in Connecticut in the, in the community health centers, federally qualified community centers with success. It has the, the, the residency that we created there in internal medicine yeah, uh, 10 years ago, I believe, or eight, sorry, eight, about eight years ago, it's still going on successfully, graduating residents. So we know that we're able to create these residencies. We know that they will be successful. We know that our graduates can, can count on them. So we are hoping to, to, to really provide a new model in terms of an international medical school. One that makes no compromises in the first two years in terms of curriculum and you know, is progressive and evidence-based and then makes real no compromise in the future years and, 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 and the residency years by making sure that, that absolutely 
no student is left behind. And, and we feel so strongly about that, that, you know, sort of announced in, in our communications and promotions policy that, you know, we essentially, if we didn't give you a residency spot, we will give you a tuition back. If we feel we are, we feel very strongly about this. We feel that it's our responsibility. We take the students for four years. It is our responsibility that they get, have a residency spot. And so there are special circumstances where you know residencies such as ophthalmology, such as orthopedic surgery, these are highly competitive residents. And it doesn't matter, even the, the you know, forget the international graduates, the domestic graduates have a difficulty matching all of them in, in, into those residency spots. If you put aside ENT, orthopedic surgery, and, and ophthalmology, if you and if you focus on the business of primary care, where the country has a shortage of physicians, if you concentrate on internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, even obstetric gynecology, these are really specialties that, that, that country, the country needs, people need, and they are rewarding. And these are the areas that we, we, we will develop relationships and we will develop new residency programs as well as developing a relationship with some of the existing programs in the country primary care program to make sure that we place all of our graduates in the primary care residency program. But that's our mission. We do want to have a, you know, we feel very strongly both about a primary care mission as well as a global health mission. So, and, and I should add that, I, I forgot to add that when we talked about the curriculum, we do have a six weeks of required elective in global health for our students during their fourth year, where they would rotate the one of our global health affiliates in, in Africa. And that rotation I, you know, that's very close to my heart. And I have seen how medical students from Yale or from other, other schools, when they come to say Uganda or Zimbabwe and they go through the six weeks elective there with us, they are transformed. They, they are not the same person at the end of those, those rotations. It has a huge impact on them and it gives them a different perspective on, on their life uh, and, and on their career as a physician. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, I definitely want to highlight to our audience that 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 very unique and incredible commitment to the students that they'll get into residency program. So aligning incentives fully, which I think is something, you know, very few, if any, schools are doing. So that, that's something people should look at. And then obviously you're speaking to our heart at Osmosis and my heart in particular with the global health focus, having been born in Namibia. And I was just in Rwanda in February working with our school, University of Global Health Equity for Partners in Health, who we've worked with for some years. I did want to ask you just more about your personal, you know, global health work going to such interesting places as Chechnya, East Timor, and Sri Lanka. Do you mind commenting a bit about some of the experiences you've had and, and what you've learned and what you want your students to take away from having similar experiences in their global health rotations? Sure. I mean, I was attracted to global health because of you know, my interest in looking at sort of inequalities, looking at the question of justice and how, and can a physician uh, 
be instrumental in those areas? Can a physician use its expertise, its prestige, its power, its position in the society to advance the cause of justice and human rights? I, I was in East Timor in the year 1999. This is a time that Indonesian forces, paramilitary forces, had attacked the country because the country voted for independence and they were essentially burning the country down, creating a humanitarian emergency. I was there uh, creating a clinic in Dili with help of a family practitioner, Dr. Dan Murphy from Iowa City, Iowa, which I guess that's where the family practitioners from Iowa City, Iowa will end up in Dili East Timor. We, together, we, he was a, a, a really a man of integrity and committed to the cause and was not going to leave no matter what. Even when the militia would come by the you know, clinic with their, on their motorcycles and, and shoot at the walls of the clinic to scare people and to scare the physicians to leave. They wanted the foreign doctors to leave. There was a strong sense of commitment, I think, amongst us to, to stay and, and not, not leave the country. And I think we survived, I think that humanitarian emergency, I think people survived it for about 11 days before they Australians and United States peacekeeping forces through the UN mandate intervened and saved the country and saved the people. Uh, millions of lives, um, and, and more than a million lives were saved because the previous version of this years years ago in this in, you know in the seventies, Indonesians did commit a genocide in the Timor, as we all know. So this was a one uh, occasion that I witnessed personally that the intervention saved a nation from genocide. And I found that very rewarding. The clinic that I built there to this state has, is there. We expanded into a hospital. We had a gentleman from a donor from China who came and, and, and allowed us to, to do that and to expand it. And then later, I believe the Japanese came to support and help it. So there was a lot of international help in order for that project to survive. But that was my experience in 1999 in East Timor. Right? So fortunately, I was prevented from experiencing also, you know, witnessing genocide. But I did witness people suffering. And it does transform you, it impacts your life. The following year, 2000, I was asked by Physicians for Human Rights to go to Chechnya, to Russia, during the war. This was the second time that, that Mr. Putin had invaded Chechnya. This was the second war declared in Chechnya. And he was doing pretty much what he's doing to Ukraine now, to, to Chechnya those days. And of course, nobody wanted to go as usual. It was the war zone. So I went along with a lawyer. Together, I was the physician. And the, the lawyer was for the purpose of the legal documentation. I was there to interview, look at the victims of torture and violence, and look at the attacks on the clinics and hospitals, look to see if there is any evidence of mass killings or, or if you will, crimes against humanity, for which we found many evidence, much evidence. Those days, though, nobody, none of the Russian neighbors were willing to react to this. So with the help of Physicians for Human Rights, which is a, a incredible organization, a great organization. I want to here take the opportunity to tell all of our 
young medical students, if they're listening, that is a beautiful organization to be part of, to become a member. It's an organization with integrity and they do a lot of great work. So we did prepare the org as, a, as an organization a 300 some page report called the Endless Brutalities, Russian War Crimes in Chechnya. And we submitted that to Mary Robinson, at the time the High Commissioner of Human Rights in the United Nations. And uh, Ms. Robinson could not really make an impact, could not do anything about it. And in fact, eventually over this, she resigned. But unfortunately, those events in Chechnya they couldn't uh, stop the atrocities, but we documented them, we reported them to the world, let the people know what was happening to the people there. So that was my experience in Chechnya in 2000. In 2004, I, after the tsunami happened in East Asia, I took a group of students and residents with me to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka was during a civil war with Tamil Tigers. So east part of the country was under control of Tamil Tigers. And the, they, they, the government and everybody else was afraid to go and deliver any kind of help there. Uh, so they felt that, you know, we as interna international doctors, they will not attack us or kill us because we are not Sri Lankan. So we had a little margin there of, you know, for our operations to go and help. And it was true because they were very nice to us. Nobody, <laughs> they were, uh, they were, you know, there were many child soldiers, of course, that I uh, got to know during that, those days, but nobody really would try to harm us. Most of these child soldiers, I think, once they, they got their, their small pack of M&M or three musketeers from me, I had a lot of those with me. They were very good friends. They would, they would they would forget that in fact they even were carrying a gun and they would and they would be you know their their eyes would light up with the chocolate and they would be your best friend. So we did three weeks of going through various parts of of those areas and trying to do our best. There was more of a really being witness to what was going on and documenting what was going on and, and trying to get help and support for many of the families. There was very little medical help you could do because with the tsunami, if you were hit by the tsunami, you were not alive. And so there were more of a smaller wounds and dislocations and, and that sort of things that you were dealing with with a population that was internally displaced as a result. That was my experience there. Also, a little experience was really uh, incredible for our young, the young doctors who were with me. I think that it really, for most of them, it just really impacted their life and changed their life. And so, and then after that, I, I mean, I've been always involved with international projects, humanitarian missions, human rights work, done human rights work, also on my country of origin, on Iran. And, you know, we created the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center at the end, documenting human rights violations and writing the story of the victims with the help of the, actually not our medical colleagues, but our, our legal colleagues from the Yale Law School who have been involved in that project and have done great work with us together to document those cases. But yes, that, that was my calling. I was, I felt, you know, I've been all my life attracted to the cause 
and democracy and human rights and and justice for the people who are suffering in in, in these countries. So. And then when you come home, I think with that perspective, also your perspective changes quite a bit. You tend to be to be a lot more, I think, sensitive to the underserved population around you, to the underserved population that live right next door to you or in your communities. And, and it just changes, changes your perspective overall as a physician and as a, just as a member of the community. Wow, that's an incredible and very impactful background. I think you're the only Raised Line podcast guest we've had who's given child soldiers candy as part of humanitarian mission. From that to getting millions of dollars in grants to start residency programs in the US, it's a pretty interesting life you've led. I'm sure your students are gonna be privileged to learn from you and, and, and other faculty. I wanna be respectful of, of your time. And so I only had two other last questions. The first is, what advice do you, are you going to give to your students when they start Monday, like a convocation? Like, what advice would you give to young early stage healthcare professionals at this point? You know, the, it, the, the biggest danger that threatens their career, I believe, is exhausting yourself, is losing heart, is what we call nowadays burnout. And then as a result, developing a negative attitude toward your profession, your surrounding, it will make you bitter and it will make your career really a torture rather than a joy. So I think the one thing I would always tell my students and my residents that don't forget this, this, this sense of purpose and meaning in your work, to have that sense of meaning in your career is the most important because everything else can fall into place. Competence you all more or less to whatever medical school and training you finally will achieve clinical time. You know, there is the system has been designed as such in the United States. It's prevent 99% of the time, it prevents an incompetent person to get to the, you know, to, to, to the final stage and, and, and become a doctor, you know. So we do produce competent doctors all the time. But do we have doctors that always maintain a sense of purpose and a meaning in their life and that they enjoy deeply what they do every day? And this has to do with them having sort of achieving this thing what we call transcendence you know having believing that you're part of something bigger and that 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 you are serving the community and other people and you are there for that purpose you your training is in the service of that the people and the community and this should give you it should give you fulfillment it should fill your heart it should make it much easier to deal with all the insurance companies, <laughs> with all the problems that you have in terms of the hospital surrounding, with all the difficulties that the various regulatory, uh, regulatory bodies impose on you on a daily basis. All of those things suddenly become very small, minor things. You smile at them, you go and figure them out, and, and you move on because of that sense of purpose, that, that 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 sense of purpose, that meaning will make you successful always and make you a good physician. 
Same with the medical students. To me, when I talk to my medical students, I tell them, make sure that you not forget your purpose. You're here to learn. So you have to always come every morning to school with a burning question in your mind. You know, what is the answer? And look for it. And you're reading for it every day with a question that is absolutely burning you. And you want to find the answer. Because if you don't have that, then after a while, everything becomes a problem. The cafeteria food doesn't taste very good. The bed in your dormitory is uncomfortable. You know, everything becomes a problem. Um, but if you have that, you will forget. If you have that burning question in your mind, you will forget what you ate today at lunch. You will forget where you were sleeping last night because you are driven by something more important, something bigger than, than those kind of small issues around you in, a day, in the daily life. So that's, that's I think, the, the most important advice I can give to the students and to our young physician colleagues. Do not forget the purpose and the meaning. And as long as you're connected to that, I think you will do very well. Wow, that's beautifully articulated. And hopefully many of your students will take it to heart as they as they move in, you know, because I certainly as a med student myself, there are plenty of challenges, but I agree with you that as long as you can stay connected to the broader purpose of what you're doing and remind yourself of it and surround yourself with other people who have that sort of passion as well, it's contagious. So hopefully, hopefully your students will be able to do that. The last question, anything else you want to get across to our audience about you, about the ACSOM or any you know, medical education, residency, open mic, anything you want to share? Well, for those who are looking for a very high quality medical education, I encourage you to look at it. I think you are trying to here do a, a good job. I think we're trying to offer a medical education with no compromise. And we have a group of really faculty and staff that their heart is in the right place. I hope that I connect to students that think the same way, that they their heart is with the community and with the improving the life of their community and people around them. And, and I hope to be able to be a positive factor in their life and in their development as, as a health profession. Well, I have, I have no doubt about that just based on this short conversation as well. So Dr. Amadi, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on the Raise Line podcast. And more importantly, for the work that you've been doing over the past several decades to actually raise the line and train more healthcare professionals all over the world and deliver care to the best that we can. So thank you again. Thank you. And thank you for really for inviting me and having me in your program. Absolutely. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.